I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles now to the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians, to Philippians chapter 1. It's been a few weeks since we've been in this letter together. It's been a few weeks since I preached here, actually. This is the longest it's ever been since uh, the church began, and I'm excited to be able to get back into God's Word with you this morning, especially to the text that we're in today. But since it's been a few weeks, I thought it'd be good to at least look back over where we've been so far in the letter to remind ourselves of that. So the letter to the Philippians begins as Paul's other letters often do. He sends his greetings. He mentions who he is, who's with him. He mentions some things about the Philippians, wishes grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, just like he always does. Then he turns to pray, expresses his thankfulness to God for them and his confidence in the Lord about them. And then he actually writes down a specific prayer for the Philippians. That's in verses 9 to 11. That stuff is pretty standard in Paul's letters. But at that point, the basic introduction is pretty much over. And Paul turns in verses 12 to 18 to give an update about his life and his circumstances. This is something he does not normally do. But he knows the Philippians love him. They have invested in his ministry for many years. And so he starts to share with them about what's going on in his life. He starts to answer questions that he knows they would ask him if they had the chance. They'd ask things like, you know, how are you doing? How's, how is it being under house arrest? How has your imprisonment affected your ministry? And, and especially, I think they would be wondering, Paul, how, how are you thinking about the trial? They know that the trial before Nero is coming. How are you thinking about it? What do you think is going to happen? Are you nervous about what might happen? These are the kinds of questions that Paul answers from verse 12 all the way to verse 26. So last time we were together uh, in, this, in this text, we look at the first part of the update from verses 12 to 18. Maybe remember, Paul answers the question really about how prison has affected the advance of the gospel. Because you would think somebody like Paul out there preaching everywhere, he's been in prison for the last four years. That has definitely hindered the gospel, right? But from Paul's point of view, he says, I want you to know, this is verse 12, this has not hindered the gospel. In fact, God has actually used my imprisonment, my chains, to advance the gospel. How? Both inside the house where he is, as he's been sharing the gospel with one Roman guard after another, but he also says the gospel has been advancing outside of the house in the city because many other believers have actually gotten courage by seeing what's been happening to me, and they've had the courage to open their mouths and start to preach Christ out in the city. So that's, that's what we looked at last time. But then I want to look at part two of the update. The transition from part one to part two happens right at the end of verse 18. So you can look at Philippians 1, verse 18, and you'll see the transition. So at the end of verse 18, Paul says, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And then he says, yes, and I will rejoice. And he starts to focus on what's in front of him. Okay, see, from that point on, Paul moves on from talking about what's already been happening to the future, to what lies before him, especially 
to his upcoming trial before Nero, to what awaits him on the other side of that verdict, whether it's guilty or not guilty. So to see what I mean, I want to actually read through the text we're going to look at uh, today. So, and then we'll go back and we'll think through it. So look at verse 18 at the end, the last phrase, and then we'll read right through verse 26. So he says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Now, I love this whole text. Verse 21 especially is one of the most well-known lines that Paul ever wrote. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But the whole text is great. And it's deeply personal. We get this feeling as we're reading it that we're being given permission to listen in on someone's innermost thoughts, like the wrestlings of someone's soul. It's like Paul's letting us in, and the Philippians in, on what he's been wrestling with for a long time. He's had a lot of time under arrest to think about what's in front of him. And he opens up his heart to how he's been processing the trial and how he's working through the very real possibility that he may be executed. At certain points, when I read it, it's almost like the audience of the letter is forgotten for a bit. And we're just hearing Paul talk back and forth to himself about what he would prefer if this were all up to him. This is a very special text in the Bible. So I want to start with just a couple big picture observations about what we read, and then we'll kind of walk back through it and highlight a few details. So so the first thing, just notice that verses 12 to 18, right before this, are about what God has already been doing. But in this section, verses 19 to 26, it's about the future. It's about what's in front of him. That's why, for example, you see all these future tense verbs in the text. He's thinking about what lies in store for him. But the, the second thing is that the specific future thing that he's thinking about is his trial. He does not directly say the word trial or Nero, but that's what is on his mind. He knows this is, he's been under arrest for a long time. Maybe you remember he was under arrest for about two years before he actually appealed to stand before Caesar. And then he was sent on this long boat ride. It was a shipwreck and all this. He gets to Rome and he sits under arrest for two whole years before the trial. And this is written kind of at the end of that. And so the specific future thing that he's thinking about is that trial. He's, he's about to stand before Nero. And then the third thing uh, is if you ask Paul how he thought the trial would go, like what's his take on it? What's his opinion? Is he optimistic or pessimistic? What do, what do you get 
the feel of in this text? What, how does Paul think it's going to go? Verse 19, he expresses his confidence that this will all turn out for his deliverance, but especially in verses 25 and 26, you get the sense that Paul is optimistic about the trial. I mean, he actually says he's convinced he's going to continue on in ministry and that he will be able to see the Philippians face-to-face again. And so he's, he, you have the sense he thinks it's going to turn out for his good, that it's going to turn out for his release. But at the same time, Paul knows that that outcome is not guaranteed. And not only that, Paul knows he does not have control over it. And yet when you read it, he, he takes time to share how he's been weighing the two possible outcomes, life or death. So especially in verses 22 to 24, Paul discusses what he would choose if the choice were up to him. Would he choose life or would he choose death? And his answer is very interesting to this. So look look back at verse 22 again. He says, if I'm to live in the flesh like to keep living. That means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between these two options because my desire is actually to depart and to be with Christ because I know that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. And so he wrestles with this. But do you, do you see how he's talking? He's, he's talking almost as if he has the power to choose the outcome, even though he knows he doesn't have that uh, ability. But this gives him a chance to open up in a way that I don't know he really does in his other letters to his friends about how he personally weighs life and death. <clears throat> he says if, it, if he keeps on living, he knows it will mean more fruitful labor for him, more chances for the gospel to spread. But what's his even deeper desire? It's actually to depart, which is to say, to die, so that he can be with Christ, to be finally and forever home with the Messiah he loves. And you notice what he says about that. He says, for that, that is far better than staying here. That's why he says, I'm so hard-pressed between the two options. And this reminds us that in Christ, neither life nor death is loss. It's it's a win-win situation. Now, that's just to get a feel for the text. And I want to go back through it and just highlight a couple of the, the key lines in the text. So go back to verse 18 to the end, and we'll read 18 and 19. So 18 at the end. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ... This will turn out for my deliverance. I want to think about that. So the one, there's a couple things I just note there. Did you see how Paul trusted God to use the prayers of other people in his life? I mean, he says, I know that through your prayers, this will turn out for my deliverance. So, so you think at the beginning of the letter, Paul talks a lot about how he prays for the Philippians, but he knows that they're praying regularly for him because that's what gospel partners do for each other. And and here he says that he 
he trusts God to work through their prayers for him to lead to a certain outcome for him. And I think just as a quick comment on this, one of the struggles we often have, or I have anyway, with, with prayer is, is with believing that God is actually doing something through our prayers. But, call, but Paul gives a great model here of trusting that God will use the prayers of other people for us. And that's a great reason to get together regularly with others to pray. That is a great reason to not just go to like prayer meetings or, or our groups like community groups or growth groups, but, but in other settings too, to actually ask people to pray for what you're really struggling with. We would do that more, I think, if we trusted that God would actually use the prayers of other people for us. But, but second, you also see how Paul trusted the help of the Holy Spirit. He says, I know that through the help of the Spirit, this will turn out for my deliverance. He was convinced that God would never stop supplying the Spirit to him. And that through the Spirit, he would be able to make it to the finish line. And so instead of, I think just, instead of leaning on his own strength or wisdom or all his past success, Paul trusted the prayers of others and the help of the Spirit to get to the finish line. And there's a lot to learn just from that. But, but I actually want to think about this verse because mostly because I want to think about the last line. When you read Paul say, I know this will turn out for my deliverance. Okay, what do you think he's talking about? Other translations use the word salvation for deliverance. Okay, but what does he have in mind? This is all going to turn out for my deliverance. By the way, if you're really interested in this, Job says that exact thing, exact line. Paul might be quoting Job 13 there. You can look at that someday. But, but think of this. Paul says, this will turn out for my deliverance. So he's about to stand trial, and we've already seen he's optimistic he's going to be released. But he knows he might not be released. He knows he might die. And so how can he say with certainty, I know this will all turn out for my deliverance? What does he have in mind? And this is, uh, you know, you think like about Nero. What if, what if Nero executes him? Would this be true, or how, how are we supposed to understand this? And here's one of those places where I really love how Paul writes because I think, I think he's playing on the word deliverance a bit there. Uh, he's completely confident that this situation, even if he dies, will turn out for his deliverance. He's certainly expecting to be let go at the trial, but even if he's condemned to die, he'll be delivered by God anyway. I think that's how I would read that. And if he is condemned to die, for him, that means he's set free to get his heart's desire, Christ. Either way, deliverance is coming. Now, as we get to verse 20, verses 20 and 21 are really the verses that most people know the best from this text. And I, wanna, I want you to look at verse 20 and try to think about what Paul was hoping for at the trial. And I think what you're going to see is that his hope was not set on getting the right verdict. Now, that would be nice for him to get the right verdict. And that would be what is just. 
But that was not his greatest hope as he thought about the trial. That is not what he was longing for at the trial. Look at verse 20. He says, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Say, what is Paul's greatest desire and hope as he looks ahead to the trial? He says, I don't want to be at all ashamed on that day. I mean, think about it. That trial could be the last day of his life. And what is his eager longing for that day? I don't want to be ashamed. And notice, this isn't Paul saying, I want to be a hero. I want to go down like a man. I want everybody to remember my stand. That is not his longing. That's, that's not, his heart is not set on his own honor. Instead, he says, my deepest desire is that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, I just want Christ to be honored in my body, whether that means life or death. Paul knows Christ has never let him down. Christ has stood with him and sustained him every step of the way. And now as Paul looks ahead to the trial, what does he long for? He says, I just, I don't want to shrink back in shame. I've lived my whole life as a believer for Christ, and I want to finish well, honoring him in my body, whether it means life or death. How can Paul say things like that? How can he treat possible death as if it's not even that big of a deal to him? The answer to that is in the most famous verse of this text, in verse 21. So Paul's able to say what he does in verse 20 because he says what he says in verse 21. Okay, verse 21 says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And that is really the heart of the whole passage. And that is a key to understanding Paul's entire life. Okay? His entire life is bound up with Christ. He had no life apart from Christ. He was in Christ. Christ was in him. Maybe you think of other texts that he wrote, like Galatians 2.20. A lot of us probably know that text. I've been crucified with Christ Nevertheless, I live. Yet it's not I, but Christ who lives in me. The center of all that Paul is, is Christ. That's why you could say in the last text that we looked at, that it didn't matter to him if people were preaching Christ to try to hurt him. He says, as long as Christ is preached, I'll rejoice. Why? It's because Christ was far more important to him than himself. And that's how he can say what he says about the trial. His hope is not in getting a particular verdict, even the righteous verdict from Nero. His greatest hope is that Christ would be honored in his body, whether it meant life or death. Why? Because he says, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Christ is at the very center of who he is, of his identity. I've been thinking a lot this week about how there is, there is no without Christ Paul anymore. That person used to exist and died. 
and has been raised as a new person. He was united to Christ. Christ was united to him. And so Christ is what gives Paul meaning, purpose, joy, strength. That is what he's getting at when he says, to me, to live is Christ. And that's why Paul can view death the way that he does. That's why he can say later, to depart this life would be far better for me. Why? Because to depart here is to be with Christ. Death would not, I mean, death, death is always the end of some things. But death would not be the end of his relationship to Christ. Death would be the thing that would open the door to more intimacy with Christ. And so if life is Christ, Paul can say death is gain, not loss. Now I want to take a look at the last part of the text, verses 22 to 26, and then come back and just think through some applications. So 22 says, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, which I shall choose. I can't tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Now, I don't think there's a whole lot that I need to add to those verses. They're pretty straightforward, but I just highlight two things. One is just to clarify that Paul is not trying to downplay the importance of life or the value of his life in this text. In other words, Paul, Paul knows death is gain, but that doesn't mean life is worthless. <clears throat> Paul would never say something like that. In Christ, life has meaning and purpose and value, both to Christ and to other people. And so think of what he says. He says, if I'm going to keep on living, I know that means more fruitful labor. That means your progress and joy in the faith if I keep on living. And second, notice on that that Paul sees he still has a role to play in helping others. That's how he's wrestling with this. Even though his personal preference is to set sail for Christ, he's convinced Jesus is going to have him stick around a little while longer. And he's content with that. After all, that's Christ's call, not his. In fact, he's looking forward to the day when his friends, his gospel partners in Philippi, see him walk through their door. Why? Because he knows they're praying for that. And he knows that if they see him walk through that door, it will lead them to glory in Christ, for doing what only Christ could do. Now, I want to close okay, this morning by reflecting on two things as we try to apply this text. Both of them have to do with verse 21, with the two halves of that famous verse, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Okay, in regard to the first half, I want to focus on the centrality of Christ in life. Paul says, to me... To live is Christ. And I want to think about a few questions together, okay? Don't you think, what, what is your life without Christ? 
Who are you apart from Christ? I've been thinking about this a lot. Who am I without Christ? What is our life apart from him? I think the answers to those questions are things like, saying about this personally, I don't know who I am apart from Christ. I do not know my identity apart from him. I, I am lost without him. I'm not sure I have a life anymore apart from him. And I think, I think this is Paul's perspective on this. There, there was no apart from Christ Paul anymore. And there is no apart from Christ me or you. There used to be. But that person is dead and has been raised new in Christ. And the, the same is true for all of us. We're in Christ. Christ is in you. Bound to Christ. Christ has bound us if, you're, if you belong to him. And this has been a, a, a challenge to me in a different way, to think about who I am, about how I think about my life. Christ is central to our very identity. He is what gives every other part of our life meaning and direction. He's to be the central hub of our lives. And everything that we do connects to that. And this has pushed me to think about various things. Like one that I just bring up today is to think about things like friendship, for example. Especially in the sense of what it means for someone else to really know me. In what sense does someone really know me if they don't know of my union with Christ? If they don't know of the central role Christ plays in all that I do and in all that I am. And yet I can think in my own life of many friendships I have had where the central part of my identity has been fairly muted or perhaps even hidden. It's often by me. And somehow I don't think that this was the case with Paul. Paul was certainly not a perfect man, but I, I have a pretty strong feeling that if you knew him for long, you would know that his whole life was bound up with Christ. And, and I've just been hoping in my own life and for us that we would be more and more the kind of people whose life is Christ, that we would see ourselves as only here in connection with Christ. There is no us apart from him anymore that we could say with sincerity to me, to live is Christ. But then in the second half of the verse, I want to come back to the centrality of Christ in death. Paul says to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. <clears throat> and I want to ask two questions about the second half of the verse. The first question is, in what sense is death gain? Because obviously, death is always loss in certain aspects, in certain respects. And I think especially to those left behind, 
when a loved one dies. But in what sense is death gain? I think the easiest way to understand this is to think of it like this. For death to be gain, you must end up getting more of what you were living for when you die. Okay? For otherwise, death is not gain. For death to be gain, you would have to get more of what you were living for when you died. Or think of this. Let's, let's say you ask someone, maybe a coworker, what is your life all about? Or, or just ask them, finish the sentence. To me, to live is blank. Okay? You can think of various things that people would say to this. Okay, let's just use one example, okay? To me, to live is money, okay? If that's what you say, then you can say this with confidence. Death for that person would be terrible loss, right? Why? Because you will not get any more of that when you die. For death to be gain, you have to end up with more of what you were living for when you die. And so for death to be gain, life must be what? What will you get more of when you die? This is how I read the text. Right? Life has to be Christ. It, it's because Christ is what you will get more of when you die. That is clearly how Paul looked at death in this text. That's why he says, to depart is to be with Christ. Now, he doesn't doubt Christ's presence with him always. Maybe to use some prepositions here. He is in Christ, but he is not with Christ in the way that he's talking about there. He says, to depart is what unlocks the door to being with Christ. Death would not separate Paul from Christ. Death would unlock the door to completely satisfying, never-ending fellowship with Christ. So then second, related to this, I want to think, is death gain for everyone? And the answer is clearly no. Death will not be gain for everyone. I think of those who do not know Christ. If that's you, this morning, death will be horrific loss. Whatever you've lived for, you will lose. And worst of all, you will be banished from the only person who could save you, from the only person who could satisfy you. If you're here today apart from Christ, know this. Christ invites you and calls you to come to him, to find in his blood the forgiveness of your sins, to find in his resurrection the hope of eternal life, and to find in himself the greatest joy you could ever know. But even for those of us who do know Christ, we should be careful that we do not get distracted from what our lives are all about. Certainly, for anyone who dies in Christ, there will be great joy. 
death will be gain. Yet, I think we should be warned that we do not want to enter into Christ's presence with our hands clinging to treasures we cannot take with us. We want to enter into Christ's presence longing for Christ because that is what we will get more of when we die. And let's pray for that for one another. Lord, I thank you for this great text. I thank you for our brother Paul opening his heart to us to help us think about life and death. And I pray that you would use this text to help us think more clearly about both. And Lord, I pray especially, Lord Jesus, that you would remind us of the central role that you have in our life and in our death, that we might, whether in the near future or far away, make it to the finish line, not ashamed, but with courage, eager to be with you. We pray this in your name. Amen.